Man, I'm having so much fun. This is a $1.6 trillion industry. I'm talking about the food and beverage space. If you're not having fun, you're in the wrong place. Yes, it's hard work, but my gosh, the companies, the brands, the flavors, the experiences, the missions, it's fantastic. But some of the brands are different, better, and special. They're the ones who are able to really compete and vie for customer loyalty. Look, I know you want to make your brand different, better, and special. I know you yourself want to be different, better, and special. That's my mission. That's why you're here. Join me on this journey as I interview CEOs and founders from all the different companies within the food and beverage industry so we can discover what they're doing, so we can take that information back, digest it, and become better ourselves and to help our companies take on different strategies, pick the right technology, pick the right partners. And of course, you got to have great tasting food. You got to have great tasting beverages, packaged goods. If it doesn't taste good, you're lost. I'm sorry. You're going to lose millions. If you're new here, take the five episode challenge. Go back, pick out some brands and CEOs, some topics. If you love the content, subscribe. You're going to find it on every podcast platform once or twice a week. But I also publish them on LinkedIn because that's where we kind of hang out. So when you see it on LinkedIn, stop by, make a comment, share it back into your food and beverage network. I would appreciate it. The brands would appreciate it. To all my loyal listeners, thank you so much. You guys are awesome. Thank you for being with me on this journey. Thanks for coming along on this mission for the past two years. If you are considering a strategic job change, message me. Let's have a confidential conversation. If your brand is growing and you need to attract experts, you also need to contact me because I have created a different, better, and special recruiting system. I promise you, no other search firm in America is doing that. Who am I? I'm Tony Moore. I'm an expert food and beverage headhunter, semi-professional podcaster, and I'm here each and every week Stay tuned for this week's episode. Welcome to Winning to Work, everybody. I'm Tony Moore. So in my course of researching and talking with so many different companies and brands, more and more, I uncover really interesting companies that have zero retail storefront. And I'm, I'm really fascinated how people spin businesses, uh, particularly in the food and beverage space. And I've got um, I've got the perfect folks here to talk to today. Nathan Hyde, he's the COO from Honeyville. He's um, connected us with one of his customers, Philip Cox, the president of Legacy Food Storage. And we're going to kind of get into you know what that partnership is like. Phil is a, uh, a serial entrepreneur. He's got multiple businesses. They all kind of run without this retail storefront. But we're going to focus on really one of them today, and that's Legacy Food Storage. You might have heard of that uh, for those of you who like to buy preparedness foods. Uh, Nathan and Phil, welcome in, guys. Thank you. Thanks, Tony. So, Nathan, I know you thought you were just the matchmaker bringing this together, but uh, I got news for you, buddy. You're on the podcast. You're on the hot seat now. Um, tell us, just give us an overview of, of Honeyville, because I know you guys have gone through a bit of a pivot back when I really discovered you guys, I was actually buying some preparedness food from you guys. And now you've kind of switched and gone to a kind of a B2B model. So just give everyone a, a little overview of, of Honeyville at this point. Yeah, I think 
uh, Honeyville's been around 70 years now. We're, uh, we're focused on four major business units. Um, first, uh, the one we work with Phil on is called our mixed co-pack business, where we're a co-pack manufacturer or the operations arm for, uh, for many companies. Um, we, we work with uh, companies such as Kellogg's. We work with Trader Joe's, um, Costco, all the big name brands and the cereal companies. We work with them. We also work with uh, companies uh, such as Phil and the Legacy Food Products. And so that area of our business focuses mostly in in cup, single serve cup manufacturing, um, bag in the box, much as you'll see as a, with a cereal, uh, a cereal box, and then also stand up pouch. Um, and so those are kind of our three major um, pack styles. We also do some stuff in in number 10 cans and 401 cans or, or hot chocolate tins. So um, that's one area of our business. And the, the second largest area of our business is our our uh, commodities or, or processed area where we, where we, uh, as a company, we are the number one um, white corn distributor in Southern California. So if, if you ever have a chance to have a tortilla or a tamale in Southern California, chances are that Honeyville's involved in that. And so we'll bring hundreds of millions of pounds of corn into Southern California um, and we will clean pack it or distribute it um, into the area. So um, we also we also have our own mill in Honeyville, Utah. That's where the namesake came from, um, where we also work with, with all the major cereal manufacturers where we're taking products off the farm, cleaning, packing them, and distributing them as well. Third, third area of our business is uh, resale. Uh, we do some resale distribution. We also do have a web page um, that we... We market some of our specific brands onto, um, but mostly our retail is done through our distribution centers in in uh, Southern California, Arizona, and uh, the Utah market. And then the fourth is an emerging brand that we're working on. It's called TempSure, or it's a heat treatment process, and so it's it's utilized for um, companies that are looking for a kill step um, done in the original package. And we, we run it through a, a kill step five log redu- reduction process and uh, sell that out in, as I said, in the original package um, to make sure that the, the ingredients are ready to eat. So that's Honeyville as a, in a nutshell. Um, we have, we have uh, about 450 employees. Um, like I said, we've been around 70 years and, and we continue growing. We have, we have, uh, goals to double the business in the next decade. Um, and so we're, we're strategizing how to accomplish that. And we continue to build great relationships with people such as Phil and the companies he, he owns. So. Yeah, that's, a, that's really a good segue. So for you to grow, one way is to bring in more of your, uh, you know, more customers for this mixed copac. So Phil, you don't seem to have a, a massive like LinkedIn profile. So you're kind of, uh, you know, on, on the down low here. That does make more sense for me, yes. <laughs> yes. I'm trying to do some research, you know, and I'm coming up with a big goose egg. Oh. Well, um, I graduated, I finished grad school up, and then I went into more of the private investment side of things. I uh, did a lot of financing, business financing. Um, ended up doing a lot more consulting on small businesses on how to get structured and set up. Then I ended up doing a lot of real estate 
when the uh, everything from uh, one of the big biggest projects I did when I finished up uh, grad school is the Powder Mountain Ski Resort. Um, that's a that's a large project. So I um, I did that. I did the capital side of it, raised them, ran the businesses, helped with the operations and all of that. And then in two thousand and about nine two thousand ten, the real estate market obviously was still trying to recover, right? And, uh, I was, I knew one of the trainers at the the gym I went to and her husband had just lost his job and I was trying to be nice and social. And, um, so I asked him what he did and he explained how websites worked just to be totally clear. I am technically challenged, so I'm not a technology whiz. I do not have those skill sets, but he does. And so I was asking about websites and he told me about how they worked and what he'd done in his, in his uh, past position to build websites. And then he explained to me how much that they were selling, like how much you could sell of stuff. And so I was just pelting him with these, just trying to be nice saying, Hey, uh, so if somebody had a, like a, if somebody had a, a product, like a specialty shower curtain and he's like oh it's funny i helped a company down in sandy put it together and he goes you're gonna die when you find out how much they do every month in sales and i was like how much do they do every month in sales and he said six hundred thousand dollars i'm like are you joking and he said no and i said how is that possible and he said well they don't have the big infrastructure that normal retail does and i and so i'm used to real estate right building out commercial pads selling to big box groups small box groups all that I'm like, you're telling me, you know, somebody that actually sells shower curtains. They sell for six, they sell $600,000 a month from their garage. And he's like, yeah, he goes, I think they, we just moved them into a fulfillment facility. I'm like, what is a fulfillment facility? And he's like, oh, they do distribution. I'm like, what does that mean? <laughs> so he explained everything to me in detail and I got an itch and I said, I want to do that. And he said, what do you want to mean? You want to do that? And I'm like, I want to do that. What do, you, what do you mean is you want to buy some shower curtains, right, Phil? No, I wanted to start a business up. I wanted to find something and I wanted to sell $600,000 a month online without a lot of uh, people involved and a lot, not a lot of bodies. So that's how I started. Yeah, just out of you being social and nice, you kind of peel the cover back on this, what is now, you know, an e-com segment that most food and beverage brands have they they have some you know outside of retail or food service that's that's really what they're doing right. now i i thought we might highlight one of your brands here legacy food stores storage tell us a little bit about that from a a consumer standpoint you know what it is why they would buy it and then i want to kind of peel the onion back a little bit more about your strategies for running a business and and maybe how, what that relationship is with with Nathan and how that Copac relationship works. So start us off with with Legacy. So Legacy Food Storage is a company we started in. Um, I guess to be totally clear, we started off. I wanted to just understand the industry, so we started off as a reseller for a different um, uh, food storage company to begin with. Uh, I was trying to understand the entire industry, so we started off uh, selling food storage for actually as uh, a as like almost a distributor part, you know, to a different brand. And then I realized that they weren't doing anything to for that, so we just did our own, right? But generally speaking, food uh, we've been doing food storage since twenty uh, two thousand and ten. 
Uh, we built the company in 2010. We launched in uh, January of 2011. If you're interested in a in good timing story, here's the good timing story. We'd been operational about four weeks when that big tsunami hit Japan and just crushed Japan. And uh, do you know what that did to food storage sales? I guess it quadrupled. Yes, it absolutely. It was going so fast. So, so it was, it was, um, it was interesting. I mean, people uh, needed shelf life. I mean, there was no way, yeah. obviously no power. Yeah. I think what happens with food storage is people go, Hey, um, they don't think about it until like, Oh, I don't know. COVID hits. Right. And there's a massive run on the uh, grocery stores and people are like, Oh my gosh. And of all the weird things, they go accumulate toilet paper. But when they start becoming familiar with the possibility of food shortages, like, if you were to look at the news today with the issues with Ukraine, people are talking about shortages on food, right? So food storage is a, is, a, is, a, is a concept of preparedness, right? It's a little bit like buying insurance. So you want to buy, you buy food storage in the event there's a supply chain issue and you can have readily available meals in your house and you want it to taste good and you want it to be, it's just, it's an assurance that when, if, if the local grocery store and stuff isn't going to be able to provide food that you have some resources available to you to be able to take care of your family and yourself in the event of a problem. So we've been doing that for a while now. Do you have any statistics as roughly what is the size of that market? Um, I'm going to guess the whole industry. We've, we've played around with that question a lot. I'm going to guess it's between 250 and 500 million a year in, in sales. Between 250 and 500 million. Mm-hmm. How many, I mean, are there a lot of big players in this space? So there used to be. So the downside to, to food storage is, is that it cycles, right? So uh, 2008, 2009 hits, economic problems hit, sales go up, right? Um, uh, tsunami hits, sales go up. COVID hits, sales go up. Um, when things are super, super secure and things are really going well, that industry drops. So most of my competitors died, I don't know, four or five years ago. And the ones that's brands are still around. It's, it's been an act, it's an act, it was a distressed acquisition thing. Right. So there's only been, there's honestly only been two of us that have made it through all the series of issues in the last maybe 11 years. All the big, all the big brands when I first started are now uh, gone except for one. Um, and so they're, they've just been acquired. Well, it's interesting. I don't know if there's a correlation between the fact that you had this online infrastructure and the fact that you are staying the course versus maybe the other brands who were trying to go maybe a more traditional route. I don't know if you have any insight into what their yeah. infrastructure was, but does that kind of tie into our, our conversation today? Yeah, it was huge. Their infrastructure, we we could never figure it, cause, figure it out because we thought, well, that's really cool that you're sitting on massive facilities and you've got all of the operations inside, you've got all distribution inside, you've got all of these call centers. I mean, but when it gets down to it, you're like, you're, they built an infrastructure on an industry that cycles on and off and they had retail brick and mortar stores. Right. So when people bring that up with me, I just think overhead, I'm like, Oh my gosh, cost. And so what we try to do is focus on uh, growth rate, but sustainable growth rate that can, cy- that, that, that can cycle through all the ups and downs in, 
in industry shifts. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's in my world of, of uh, staffing, broadly speaking, that's what staffing does. We flex and move with, with production so you go through spikes and you move on and off and you you always keep a baseline, but you can kind of flex up, flex down. And it sounds like you, you're building – you kind of built this out to flex based on Correct. what's happening. And that kind of brings in this relationship with Nathan and, and how that, that partnership is working. So I know we're going to dive in a little bit more. You're going to go through some more specifics with us, but maybe talk a little bit too about – how you're partnering with Nathan and in, in, in this co-pack relationship. How does that work? Because I can think, I had a bunch of questions coming into this, like, you know, how much investment do you need? And, you know, how do you create the right kind of contract with a co-packer? And how much do you have to make in advance? All these questions came through my mind. And I thought, you know, how do you, you know, which comes first, chicken or the egg? Do you get the customers first? Do you get the product first? Yeah, so I think I can answer. I, let me start with the big picture with Honeyville. So Nate already explained Honeyville when he said they've been around 70 years, right? So imagine you're me and you're trying to make a big splash in the emergency preparedness space and you're a brand new brand. Nobody's heard of you. You can't go up and say, I've been around since 1983. I haven't been around since 1994. I don't have that. So going to Honeyville and starting manufacturing with Honeyville, I picked up their 70 years of experience. So instead of selling me, selling our legacy company is, hey, look at amaz- how amazing we are. We got permission from Honeyville to tell everybody how amazing Honeyville is. Because <laughs> people, I mean, imagine day one, they're like, hey, we've never heard of you before. And my response back on our website everywhere was like, of course, we're just in a way, we're an extension of Honeyville. We sell their products and they've been selling since 1953. They've been selling food storage since the early 70s. So do you want to work with us who's got a manufacturer that's huge, that's been doing food storage specifically longer than anybody else? Or do you want to pick up one of these groups that's got their own facility that's been around since, I don't know, 2006? And we win immediately. So is that part of the model, do you think, going forward for people to kind of leverage the co-manufacturer's backstory? or did I would. I would. So- yeah, and I think Tony, for for some of our customers, that's that's a that's a very big uh, benefit to them. Others customers don't want they don't want anybody to know that we co-pack for them. They want their perception they're trying to put out to the marketplace is that they own their own manufacturing and that they're they've got it all buttoned up. So they want to look vertically integrated and blah blah blah. And other people don't mind. Like Phil, you're just savvy in in that of. Let's market something that's bigger and has a brand already. And I, th- I think that's where Phil has has hit uh, hit his stride in some of this. Is Phil's very good about um, building partnerships and, and really being able to bring the team together to say, "Hey, let's let's maximize this. Let's make one plus one equal three rather than one plus one equals two. And so that's what that's the way we've approached it with Legacy. It's been very beneficial. I I'll say. Uh, as I as I've told you, Tony, we no longer carry our own our own emergency preparedness brands um, because we've we've really partnered with with Phil and his team on a on a marketing and a sales channel. They can do it way better than we can. Therefore, we allow that to 
we support them, they support us. It's it, it really is a there's not really a contractional agreement in place or financial agreement in place, but it's it's we both know where we play and we both know what margins we need to get to make it to be successful, and it works well for us. So. I mean, just to give some background, Tony, on a couple things. Think about this. So I built my business story on Honeyville Grain. Okay. So people know they can trust legacy because they've, we've told the Honeyville story. Fair. So I get hit up by manufacturers about six times a year to switch over our manufacturing to them. Can you imagine how difficult that would be for me to change up my story after all of these years that we moved our manufacturing and I made all those adjustments? That's not a good plan. So whether, so, I mean, to my knowledge with, I mean, maybe Nate can correct me. Our, our, um, our contractual agreement is I pay them for stuff I purchase. I mean, when I place a, a PO, I pay for it. That there's our relationship. I trust them. Mm-hmm. They trust me. I don't go anywhere else. Cause a, it would be stupid for me to, and those, those, those adjustments would be stupid for me, but Honeyville has always been honest with us. So we just, we stay like, I'm very familiar with people are going to come in and tell me, Hey, we can do this better. That is a given. Everybody's always going to put their best foot forward and say, we can do this better than whoever else. I, I totally get that. Just because they said it does not make it so. So my, ex- my personal experience has been as the business owner side of it. Um, you have to be really, really, really careful who you partner with who, who are your suppliers? Who's got your back? I mean, if, if when we get a surge, right? Like when, when Russia hits, uh, goes into Ukraine, do you know what that week looked like for us? It was crazy. You probably never, you just didn't sleep. Yeah. It was just cells going, you, you, you literally, it's like you go from, you know, 30, 40, 50,000 a day in cells to 300,000 a day in cells, right? Like you just, you can't keep up with that. But see, we can call Honeyville up that day and say, this is what we're seeing. And they flip on a machine system for us and they go, they go. It's not, it's, it's, I mean, it, it sounds funny because it's just a, it, it's just a co-packer relationship, but it's really not. It, it, I mean, as, as crazy as it is, no Honeyville, no legacy. It just, it doesn't work. And Tony, I think just to, just to add on to what Phil's saying there, um, we used to do our own distribution center. When, when, when Phil started with us, we were doing our 3PL in-house. We had a distribution center in uh, Ohio, and then we also had one in Southern California. We came together as a team and we said, look, we're not proficient in this. And, and Phil can attest to this. We were not meeting the expectations of, of how we wanted to do that. And so what we did is we came together as a team Phil actually had identified a 3PL in Utah that would would be a good fit for for uh, for Legacy. We went with them, we investigated it, and we actually shut down those distribute or those 3PL centers because we knew it wasn't our strength and it wasn't what we were what we wanted to be. And we shut those down, and we actually moved some of our internal distribution over to them um, for any of our e-commerce or website sales. And that's the type of partnership we have. We're honest with each other. If if we've got something that's not helping the other team be successful, we sit down, and we talk about it. And so, yeah, there's there's nothing on paper that we're financially linked other than POs and and uh, and payments. 
but it's the relationships. And I think today what we're seeing at Honeyville, and I, I bet I bet Phil would attest to this as well. Today's supply chain and relationships. If those relationships aren't solid today, you're not going to get product. It doesn't matter if you're willing to pay a little bit more or not. Right now, it's the relationships. It's the people that are not the executives of the company that are willing to do favors for you you as a vendor because you've treated them with respect in the past. And that's just the reality of it. And so these people that are constantly trying to manipulate and pressure and pound, they're losing in the marketplace right now because they haven't focused on relationships. The world today is about relationships. And that's why Honeyville and Legacy succeed as a team because we built it on relationships, not on dollars and cents first. Kind of walk us through logistically. You said you're not an IT guy. I don't mean, well, logistically, maybe part of it, but just walk walk us through your steps, your ideas, your your best practices to launch and start a business. Yeah. So there's, there's certain businesses. So we've had, we've had different companies, right? So I think I mentioned we've owned real estate companies. I've set up financial companies, just all kinds of businesses. For me, what I'm trying to do is I try to keep core competency, core groups within my organization in close. And then I try to outsource everything else through strategic relationships, right? Uh, As I mentioned, I'm not tech slow. I'm tech stupid. Okay. So let's just call it a spade a spade. So what that means is, is for me to understand and keep track of what's going on in the digital space, I have to have somebody who's super smart on the technology side. Okay. So, uh, I have brought in those people. I I literally went headhunting for those people. So when we wanted to get a digital ad guy that, because honestly, I have not had good experiences with agencies. A, they're ridiculously expensive. And B, I don't feel like they actually are ever able to communicate our product stories out in the market. Right. So I went and cut a deal, uh, that, that, person I told you that I had met at the gym, I, when I said, Hey, let's do this. I said, who's the smartest person in the industry for the advertising stuff? Like, who is that guy? And he said, but you'll never get him. I said, okay, but I at least want to take a shot at it. Who is it? And he's like, Oh, his name's Parker. He's actually in Utah, Phil. I was like, well, can we meet him? So I met him. He owned a whole bunch of his own companies. This was not somebody that was doing it for other people at the time. He owned dozens of websites himself. He was financially great himself. I met with him nicely, just kind of walked him the process of what we were thinking about what he would do. In that process, I was saying, I was asking him and what I was really fishing for, I was fishing for the points that he struggled in with his business that he wished he didn't have to do. And I systematically, as he was sitting there talking to me about what he did, I went, okay, so this is an individual who literally just wants to play with dials all day and look at analytics and study and literally study ad structure campaigns. He doesn't want to run the back end of a business. He hates to be in board meetings. He hates to be managing employees. He hates to manage payroll. He hates to manage operations. He hates to manage inventory. He hates all of it. So all I did is I said, hey, Parker, what if I cut you a deal? Everything you hate will do. You hate it. We're great at it. And he was like, are you serious? And I said, sure. If you'll just focus on ad stuff, I don't care if you come into the office. I don't care. Just do the ad side. And he said, done. Then I went to some guys I knew that ran operations and all they do is operations. 
like when I say all they do is operations, like these guys are accounting financial nerds on steroids. They can run a spreadsheet faster than anybody. So you mean back office accounting finance support? Yeah. Oh yeah. That's a core area for me. So I, I put that together. So I just assembled a team. So a big misconception people have, at least from my position, from my standpoint, from where I'm standing is they go, oh, Phil must understand everything about how this whole system runs backwards and forwards. No, I don't. I mean, I know it well enough to know things, but just like the relationship I have with Honeyville, I have with my inside team. I have got my guys so dialed in, I know they worry about stuff more than I do. That's what I know. I know if a campaign is losing money and it's not performing, I know Parker, who runs that, is more worried about it than I am times 10. I know on the accounting side, with all the new tax adjustments that have been going in across the country for e-commerce, which has been happening, it used to be you could just sell anything online and you weren't dealing with state tax. That's all changing. You have to have people inside that care about that stuff. So internally, I bring everything internal that's necessary. To me, accounting, financial side of it, the branding, the brand information's inside. Everything else is external. So go through that list again. So what uh, what is your infrastructure right now, roughly? So I have um, operations. To me, includes all the financial side. So operations and financial. That is internal, meaning we know where everything is at any given time, where every PO is. I know all of that internal everything. We know what our margins are. We have, we track sales, we track analytics, all the numbers are done in-house always. The technology side of what we do, where, when, and how that's internal. The ad side that a lot of people go to agencies for, we have that internal. You brought that in with Parker. We brought that in with Parker. Everything else, I mean, hold on. I do have customer service. I do have that. So I have an, I have an operation customer service side. Everything else we outsource. I mean everything. How many companies are you kind of running with this model, roughly? Um, right now, I've got I'm running two, and then I've got uh, I've I've been asked to run a, a large one. I don't know that I'm going to do it, but um, but I I can literally take this same team and I can plug it in anywhere. Yeah, like and that's why I was just trying to sort out because you've made the investment in people. Yep. So you're building your infrastructure. So in theory, you could bring in another idea. Correct. And just kind of add it into the mix. And then just at some point when they get overloaded, you just have to hire another person for that one particular area in your company. All right. Yeah. But but I'll give an example of something that's a little bit. So we own, we, we, we don't just own Legacy. We own our supplement company, right? Silver Fern. So on that one, I found the niche was I needed science. Both my master's degrees are in business, not in the science of health and nutrition. I don't have that background. I I play in that background. I play like I understand that. I read that. I don't understand that. So I literally outsourced my science on all of my supplement stuff with a crazy smart group out of Chicago. When I met them, I'm like, you're my science department. And they were like, what? I'm like, have you ever done this for somebody on, the, on an e-commerce basis? And they were like, no. I'm like, would you be willing to do that? And they're like, no. I'm like... Try thinking about it differently and then give me a different answer with a yes. And they were like, what? And I said, so let's imagine that you do want to do it. How do we make that work? And they ended up signing on to that. And that's how I ran the science side. So my science, people think our brand on Silverfern is ridiculously, like we're talking crazy science-based. Like people think our brand is 100% science-based. It is. 
But I haven't owned that until January of this year. I have outsourced that for eight years. Hey, Phil, go in, go in into a little bit deeper about Silver Fern. That's, that's something on our side of the equation we've, I've always been interested in personally, but uh, talk a little more about it, like the specifics. Yeah, so Silver Fern was, so I, I did grow up playing ball. I like sports. I, I like athletics, as, as, as I'm sure you guys are both aware, as you get older, everything starts to fall apart. Is that fair? So what I found out when I started doing some basic research, when I was, if I went into a local gym and I looked at everything that was being sold, it was like creatine, branched chain amino acids. It was muscle protein powder. It's like everything to build muscle. But if you walked onto the floor and you asked somebody, hey, what are your health challenges? They all said, oh, I've got an autoimmune disease. I've got diarrhea. I've got constipation. I've got health issues. And I'm like, that's funny. You have an entire storefront up there that literally doesn't address what most of the people in the gym have slow metabolism, just to be super relevant, right? So when I started doing basic research on that, I found out that everything went back to gut health, like everything went to gut health. So I was, while I was building legacy, I started studying gut health. Why? Because I was just so curious about it. I had never understood it, totally new for me, no experience there. And I like to learn new things. So as I started to get into it, I thought I had an amazing, a huge uh, array of information. And then I was introduced to a microbiologist that was coming to teach at the University of Utah's medical school on the microbiome. And he flipped everything upside down and went, nope, this is how gut health actually works. And I was so enthralled with him. I said, can we work with you? And he was laughing. He's like, I own a science company. Like literally, it's a science-based research facility for the microbiome. That's what he does to science. And I said, yeah, um, you want to work with me? Now, in that case, I didn't give him ownership or a partnership. I just said, hey, why don't you why don't you do the science side and I'll cut you in on products you formulate. You offer all the science, you do this side of it and you and I'll do this side of it. And he agreed. Once again, no contract. No contract. I, I, had, I didn't have a contract with him. To this day, I don't have a contract with them. Nate, I don't have a contract with you either. And how's that gone? Great. We, I think, uh, as long as you surround yourself by guys that are trustworthy, you shake hands and you go yeah. to work. Yeah. So I'm, I'm still that. I'm not, and I'm not saying uh, Tony that everybody's that way, and I understand that. But, but if I've built my business around. In this case, that microbiologist and his research team, ah, they've got me, they, they may not have me contractually bound, but they've got so much leverage on me, it would be very difficult for me not to keep my word. Does that make sense? But I outsourced for my supplement company, which is growing great. That business has been uh, one of the ones I've been most focused on, and it, it grows really, really well. But I have literally outsourced the, the science side of that, the smarts of it. The really heavy, like, smarts of that business, like, where people, I mean, I've been learning, too. I've been going through the same process as my customers to learn it, but I don't own the genius behind the product. So, it's funny. People think I own the IT part of our product. No, I don't. I own the brand. All right. So, from your vantage point, now that you have proven your model once or twice or even more times than that, you're sitting there thinking, what's next? What's next? Correct. What's coming? How can I fit this into my model? Can you walk us through maybe other industries or, or kind of product ideas that kind of might be good starting points for people who want to do this online? 
Yeah. So, I mean, so right now when we, when we grow, when we scale, we try to find things that fit in our bucket that we exist, we already have as much as possible. Okay. So with the food storage business to be specific, I want to scale that business, but it's still only, I mean, let's face it, it's still a small industry. Does that make sense? So we are acquiring the distrib- exclusive distribution rights right now to represent one of the largest container, like the water container businesses. You know, everybody wants water with food, right? So with food, you need water, right? So we are acquiring that distribution, ex- exclusive distribution rights for that uh, for our industry right now. That's how we're going to scale that industry as I pick up and scale other areas within that space because it makes sense. Now, with supplements, with the supplement business, my audience is primarily women. So I can throw anything into my system that works that fits my audience, which is women. So I could do skincare. I could do any of that off of my current platform. If somebody is, if somebody's starting an e-commerce company from scratch and somebody asked me my opinions and views on what's going to work and what's not going to work, uh, me too products do not work. So why not right now? What's that? Why not? Because what happens is, I'll, I'll give an example. Can I, I'll, let me give an example of one. So we have all these women, I told you our audience, right? So there's a product where you can put a little sticker, it's like a little patch, and you can put it on acne, and the next morning, it's pretty much going to go away. My daughter, it's I've the, seen those. My daughter, I, every now and then, she'll come down, it's like a little gold star or something. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. And it works great. And there's a new technology version of it right now, because I know the manufacturers of that. And it's got a zinc alloy based. It hasn't come on the market yet, but it'll be coming out soon. And we, through our relationships, we're given the right to that. The problem is, is the people that are selling those huge quantities on Amazon and other channels online, they're selling them for like eight, nine bucks for a box. They're into the box about a buck 25. Okay. You're, by the time you get done with fulfillment and distribution on that, <clears throat> you've lost all your margin. There's a, those companies are making a dollar a box at most. So in order for that to happen, in order for that to really work from a financial perspective, you got to be selling like tens of thousands of those boxes every month, right? So as cool as it was to see we could get the new hottest, neatest zit fighter on the market on a patch, which was kind of cool. The margin and the space to do that in doesn't work. A lot of people are going to China right now and they'll say, hey, I'm going to get T-shirts and sell T-shirts. The problem is the Chinese are just selling directly on Amazon. So unless you've got a cool brand or you've got a new technology of something that makes some sense, you don't want to go fight in that space. Me Too products do not work. Um, if you can't differentiate yourself and create a different story and you can't explain that fairly quick, you shouldn't touch it. The cool thing about e-commerce is there's a million channels and there's, there's so many people coming up with cool stuff every day and e-commerce allows people to jump into a space with business without spending years and years and years chasing retail. Now, when you say channel, can you explain that? You said lots of channels, you referring to, um... Google, Bing, Yahoo, Facebook, Instagram, okay, TikTok. social channels. Yeah, social channels. You can, and you know, Shopify, you can build a website that's super functional, very inexpensive to come out the gate with. There are, I mean, there's, there's, there's places like Amazon where you can build up and you can grow, you can scale a business fast. 
you, you can really scale it quick. And and I don't, and I'm not, it's not like I'm a smart person. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not a doorknob, but I'm not exactly the brightest person in the world. For me to be able to go out and say, hey, there seems to be a niche in this area and I should be able to move into that area specifically. Even though I like, for example, in the supplement space, I didn't just focus on I mean, I went really specific. I was like, hey, I want to do supplements, which is a, is probably the most competitive space on social media. Just, you know, it is by far the most competitive. It's got the low, lowest barriers to entry, right? So supplements. Then I kind of shimmied it down to gut health, which is pretty popular right now. It has been for since we started. Gut health was really coming on strong then. Then I went, well, what is everybody else missing on gut health? Everybody else was pitching probiotics. I came out on the market and said, probiotics are the most amazing thing. We've got the best. I can explain how. Don't start with them. And everybody went, what? Yeah, yeah. If you've got serious gut issues, don't start with probiotics. So we definitely came up with a different angle, a different approach, and a, a, different, a, different, uh, a different setup, right? The cool thing, though, is that for somebody trying to start a business, the barriers to entry to get in and build an e-commerce business is so small from a capital expenditure side of things. It is so minuscule and it's so easy compared to anything else I've ever seen. I don't know why more people don't do it. Well, that's why so, I'm hoping people hear this and ex- explore this more. I mean, I, of course, it depends on what, what channel and what, what kind of product you're looking at. But just in general, what kind of investment do you think people need to, to start something or I have, I've, I've started all my, I started every one of my businesses, all of them, $300,000 with small use of money building up and ramping up. And we've cash flowed all the way through that, uh, since then. And the cool thing is, is once you get your cash flow going, guess what? Amazon uh, offers financing, PayPal, uh, offers financing, Shopify offers financing. You don't even have to go to banks or investors these days. Are they competitive rates? Oh yeah. They're they're more expensive than banks, but I mean compared to equity, it's not even in the same universe. It's like Right, right. I mean I mean I mean uh You're giving up points rather than equity. Oh yeah. So like when we scale real I mean, right now we do really well, so we don't have debt. But when we began, we were all debt. We were we leveraged our way into everything. So when when the market would go aggressive, like take COVID. That when COVID hit, man, I I borrowed every channel I could possibly get online. I didn't go to my bank. I bank with Wells Fargo. People don't get money from banks. It's stupid. They put too many covenants and requirements on it. It's just not smart. So I just, I went to all my channels, Amazon, PayPal, Shopify. We just leveraged all of those. And I had it all paid off in 90 days because I was, there was an opportunity. We saw COVID was hitting. Food storage was going crazy. So call up Nate, good relationship. Nate, I need a ton of product. Secured financing, brought it in, pre-sold it, sold it. And, and here's the cool thing. I mean, so, I mean, not to get really granular on it, but I don't know if people understand this, but there are a million companies in Asia that are looking to have a dynamic relationship in the U.S. I've got relationships in China. They will float the cost of materials and goods and bring it into the U.S., for in exchange for the right to be the distributor of the goods. They don't have to be an equity partner. Right. They just want to participate in, in the top line. Yeah. They, they were, or they just want to be your supplier. It's crazy. The deals you can cut. The, the, in my opinion, people make mistakes because they don't cut deals. They think money solves all problems. 
oh, I'm going to resolve all my, my problems by throwing cash at it. That's just stupid. That's not smart. So you can negotiate. I mean, Nate, we have good terms with you. We've always had good terms with Nate. We pay our terms, but we followed those. I mean, when I came into packaging with Berlin Packaging, I was trying to figure out how I was going to cover the costs on all my pouches. I was like, oh my gosh, I've got to pay for the pouches because Honeyville's not covering that for me. They're not floating that. I mean, so I went and I tried to figure out how to do the pouches. I met with uh, um, Andrew Berlin at the time that owned Berlin Packaging. He was in town, a very nice man, but also very uh, aggressive, wanting to hit the Utah market hard. And I said, I'll make you a deal. I'll switch over pouches and everything to you. I want seven-month terms. And he was like, no, no, no. We do 90-day 90, 90 terms. I'm like, you got to deal with me right now on seven-month terms. I will always pay every single time like clockwork. I'll sign a personal guarantee on that, and I'll move over tomorrow. Do we have a deal? And he agreed. Yeah, so you just gave yourself the float that you needed. Yeah, so I mean, at that point, I'm playing Walmart. I'm selling goods before I have to pay for them. Are there are there some products or goods services that well, not services? Are there some products that um, are probably are more interesting to you at this point? I know you've got your your two spaces that you're going to try to leverage, but I'm I'm trying to right. think ahead for other people that are listening. They're thinking, okay, I want to try this. So maybe you've got some other. Yeah, maybe, maybe you're not going to get involved in it, but there's, you still think they're good ideas. Yeah, I'll give an example. Um, I've got a friend of mine. He's been in banking forever, but he's kind of a, a nerd on just, he's an entrepreneurial nerd that's got a banking background, right? So he knows I've got these big, these this big footprint in the emergency preparedness space. So he created a hand well pump, okay? Which you're like, why, what is that? Is that a big deal? Well, people that are in a lot of these uh, places outside of big cities, if they're, they're on a well, and if electricity turns off, their well doesn't work. So a hand well pump allows for people in an emergency, like when their lights turn out and the electricity goes off, if you're Texas and a hurricane hits and all the power's off, it allows for somebody to pump water without having electricity. It's just a hand well pump. He created it, he invented it, he made it. He brought it to me and said, I'm going to sell this to you. And I said, that is really cool. We pay him roughly fifteen to twenty thousand dollars a month on a small hand well pump. <laughs> he sells that many through us, and then and that's not even his own channels. He's also selling it himself. So it, you know, it's just so an add-on product it, for you when people. Are oh buying, yeah. yeah, we sell. I mean, we do great on it. We do fantastic. But he he does really 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 well on that. I have a group down in um, not far from my offices in Salt Lake, and 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 they came in and they said, hey, we're we think we can put together a better emergency kit than somebody else. And I'm like, what does that mean? And they and they explained it to me and I'm like, okay, done, bring it in. They bring it in. We pay for it. We're, we're floating their cost for hell's sakes. So I'm floating their cost to pay for the goods. They're assembling it and putting it together down in their, their facility down in Utah County. And so, so they didn't go out of pocket with money. I'm the one that paid for everything because I just wanted the I just wanted the product, right? So they bring it in, they package it, I pay for it and send it to our facility and we sell it. So I mean there's a million ways. It's just about relationships. It's what Nate was saying earlier. It's it's like and I'm not exactly a difficult person to negotiate with. I'm like if I can make money and somebody else can make money, I'm in. 
And so if I see an opportunity, um, and, and I'm a deal guy, right? So if somebody came in and they said, hey, look, I've got my secret something, and it's an amazing something, whatever that something is. We're, I mean, I'm going to turn around and go to my digital team and say, research it. You find out what, what the barriers to entry are, find out who we're competing with, uh, find out what prices we need to be at, find out what the space looks like in social media, none of which, Tony, I do, just to be clear. I don't even know how to do that stuff. So I tell my guys to do that, and then they come back and say yay or nay. But if it's a yay, we're like, I don't, I want to, I want to work with people, right? Like, I don't want to create what they create. I just want their story and I want to sell it. Yeah. And frankly, a lot of the questions that I've ha- I had, I'm not asking because I, I now understand that that's part of your team because that's, I, w- I wanted to go there too. I kind of wanted to understand, you know, how you break down a market, how you look at, you know, uncovering think, a niche. I think problem, the problem with all these people that want to do entrepreneurial stuff is they'll, they'll see this software company, right? And this software company raises a hundred million, $500 million for a new software system for a new medical, whatever software. So doctors have software fast and they raise this crazy amount of money. They burn cash like nuts for the first eight to 10 years. It's the Facebook model, right? You build this crazy huge platform. It doesn't start off with any revenue at all. There's no advertising on it. It's just built out as a big a big social platform. They, they don't even know how they're going to monetize it yet, but people are investing in it. That is one version of how to do a model. But if you're like me and you're not rich and, you, and you're, you're like, okay, so where do I start if I have nothing? You have to use relationships. And, 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 and a lot, what happens is, is most people spend all their time chasing money. They're always trying to raise money and, and which is, which is fine, but what a waste of time. If you, if you cut the right deals with the right relationships, it takes your capital requirements down dramatically. If you put the right relationships in place with the right people, it drops your capital requirements significantly. I didn't have all the money in the world to start paying people out the gate you know, ten, twenty thousand dollars a month salaries. I didn't have that. So I started off to begin with. I put everybody and I'm just like, we're gonna all bust our asses for the next six months. And after that, then we'll pay ourselves, but don't leave your day job right now. And so that's how we did it, because I didn't want to go raise a ton of money. But guess what? We don't have debt. I don't have I don't have I mean our full investment for all of our businesses up front was three hundred grand. Yeah, and that's very doable, particularly if you have a couple of people that want to go in on an idea with you. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, there, I mean, it, it sounds funny, but you can get rich people to throw a hundred to two hundred thousand dollars at anything that has a good business plan. As soon as you, the problem is everybody goes out and they're like, they don't negotiate correctly, they don't put the right structure in place, and so they think they need two to five million dollars to start a business plan. I, I haven't even, I don't, I never do that. Even on real estate, when I started real estate projects, I had no money. The first thing I did is I went to a group. I'm like, I know where to buy real estate. I know how to buy it. I know what the margin is on it. You get 80%, I get 20%. Deal? And they went, done. My first 700 grand. Closed it in a week. That was the deal I cut. It was the first yeah, transaction I ever maker. did. I think that's, you know, we, I don't get into it that much on the podcast anymore, but there, I used to have a segment where it was, you know, kind of uncovering someone's superpower. And that's what yours is. You know how to make deals. You are, I, you're a deal yep. maker. You're, you build those relationships and you, 
you kind of bring the ideas and these people that you're bringing in, they have the money. They also have the, um, maybe they they don't have the vision and you're kind of giving that to them and you're cutting yourself in on that deal. I don't know. It's, it's, you make it sound really easy. I gotta be honest. But, but let's, Hey, Nate, you remember when we first started, I think Johnny was the one that told me, he's like, we understand we're your bank. Do you remember that? Absolutely. They, they were our, they were my bank. My supplier was my bank. They helped it and worked out terms, so they were floating my costs. I mean, that's why I'm so damn loyal to them. They're my, they were like my first, I mean, they were covering me millions and millions of dollars. And I'm like, I have the buyers. They're right here, but I don't have millions of dollars. And I remember them going, can you sell it in 90 days or less? And I was like, it's already sold. Yes. My bank was them. Well, that's why the relationship worked so well is because uh, Phil we, Phil was just as upfront with us on day one as he is right now, right? So, so we knew our part of the program and he knew his part of the program. As long as we both were more concerned about the other partner in the deal, the partnerships will always be successful. It's when, it's when you get selfishness coming into a partnership that that's what blows it up. It's when somebody says, hey, I'm not going to pay my bill because, you know, I found a bug in one of my products. Or somebody saying, hey, uh, you did me wrong here. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to make you pay for it. That's just a relationship that we try to stay away from. We, as Phil talked about, you can you can generally sniff out those types of relationships very quickly. And we do have, we have, we have uh, manufacturing agreements with many of our customers that that's the way they choose to do business. And that works as well with legacy. We don't feel like we need to have that because we are both looking out for each other's interests and we're both capitalists. <laughs> we're, we're both capitalists. And so, uh, but we're capitalists with a purpose and we're capitalists with, with, uh, understanding that relationships, as I talked about, can make that equation be one plus one equals three. So, I mean, here's a, here's a fascinating thing I've learned, Tony. So my business partners years ago, they were old school, right? They were like, you'd go into negotiation. It was just old school negotiation, right? The, you've, I'm sure you've heard the, the concept of keep the kimono closed, <laughs> right? So I don't know if you've ever heard I've that. I've not Maybe actually the, heard that. So yeah. Um, they would always be like, Phil, you can't negotiate that way. And I'm like, what way? And they're like, you, you don't have a filter. And I'm like, I, I'm never going to have a filter. So I would go into these guys and go, listen, here's what I'm thinking. Here's how I'm thinking. Here's how it benefits. And here's how it benefits me. And here's how it benefits you. And I just give them the full A to Z backwards and forwards, don't leave anything out, the good, the bad, the ugly, it all gets thrown into the mix. And I, and I, and I just ask. And most people are like, and you can sense it. I know this because I sense it. When people are lying to me, man, I totally feel it. When somebody's giving me a 70% of the story, I feel it. Something just doesn't feel quite it's not a hundred percent, right? Yeah. But do you know what happens when you go in to get financing and you're like, here is the entire business model. 
and you go to the investor and you go, this is why you should want to do this, and this is why it will succeed. But here's the whole story, not part of the story, not a quarter of the story, not a little bit of it, not the business plan, like the full story. People don't leave that. I've got people to do the craziest things in my career because I don't hide anything. There's no filter ever. The kimono's open. The kimono is wide open, <laughs> which drives my partners nuts. They're like, you got to shut up, Phil. And I'm like, why do I give a damn if they know what my margin is? Why do I care? Like even on my supplement company, you guys are making a killing. No, we're not. Here's my margins. They're like, you just put that out in the world. Yes. Yes, I did. Yes, I'm in business. Yes, I need to make money. And no, I'm not screwing people. Might as well just tell them up front. I think we could go on for another hour, but um, we might just have to break this up into another segment. Okay. We're going to close the kimono. Okay, we'll close the kimono. Yeah, and I didn't expect us to go in this direction, which means it's been a great podcast because the when things come unexpectedly, that's that's what you want. And I'm sure there's going to be questions that I wished I had asked you, and that's why we'll probably have a, a follow-on. So, um, Nathan, how do people find Honeywell? What's the – like for business-to-business sales, is it Honeyville.com? Yeah, honey, Honeyville, uh, just Honeyville.com. Okay. Um, just, just, uh, it's like I talked about in the beginning, that's, that's where our namesake comes from. It's our first location in Honeyville, Utah. So honeyville.com. Got it. And all right, Phil, so you've got a couple products. Let's just go ahead and get the, the, the websites out there for, for both those products. Uh, legacyfoodstorage.com, silverfernbrand.com. Silver Fern. Fern brand, F-E-R-N. Yep. Silver Fern brand. Gentlemen, it's been very eye-opening and you do make it sound just kind of like you make it sound simple you really do you've heard the concept keep it simple right yes thank you for not calling me stupid but yes i've heard it k-i-s-s i've heard but i mean you seem to do that you really do i think because i'm not smart tony i'm not smart people who are listening are definitely thinking you're very smart so Tony, I'm let, just me, saying, they let me think sum it this up. This is a very smart way. model what you're doing. Go ahead. Yeah, let me sum it up this way. It's it's simple, but it's genuine. And I think you sum it up as genuine. And so what you get from Phil and what you get from Honeyville is look, we're not in business to it's it's not we win, you lose. It's a we win, we win. And so as, yeah, as, Phil, as Phil said it, what's that? Yeah, we need more of that in the world. Yeah. And as Phil said, I learned this early on in my life, and I I try to teach my kids this every day. But if you don't tell people what you want, they don't know what to give you. And so Phil Phil summed it up in his in his his approach of open kimono. But if you don't let people know what you're coming in to try to try to accomplish, then they don't know how to help you reach those goals. And that's that's why Phil's been so successful. Is he comes in with a plan. He knows what he wants to accomplish, and then he shares it with everyone so that they can help him reach those goals. And at the same time, he helps them understand what's in it for them. And so that's that's why these partnerships work, because it is it's about everyone around us making things better for all of us. So on that, I, I sure appreciate the time um, that you've let me uh, listen in. Phil's a 
Phil's always entertaining to, to listen to. And, uh, yeah, it's, even... a, it's a good thing this is audio only because, believe me, the kimono has been open, folks. Um, <laughs> Phil, uh, great talking to you, sir. Thank you. And looking forward to hearing what's next on the platform. And Nathan, great to great to talk to you again. Thanks for setting this up for us. And stay tuned for the next round. Yes, sir. Let's see what comes next. Thank you guys so so much. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it.